We are in the book of Amos, Amos today, and uh, like uh, famous Amos cookies, and um, I, I, maybe I'm hungry, okay, but uh, that's what came to my mind right now. It was not in my notes prepared like a joke on cookies, okay, but um, we're going into Amos. I'm going to spend probably two weeks here, and, um, and, and I want to tell you real quick before I get into this, uh, next week... Um, the preaching in Amos is going to be focused on something very specific, and, and, and it's this, that you and I would be people who live confident. Can somebody say the word confident? That we would live confident in who Christ has called us to be and in what Christ has called us to do. That you would not get your identity, your thoughts about yourself from the opinions of other people, from what others say, but you would walk confident in who the Lord has made you to be. It's going to be an important message. Um, I believe that God um, will even bring some healing to some people's lives and, and, and lead you to a place of boldness in the Lord. And so it's going to be good. So make sure you come. Make sure you invite some other people. And, um, and, and it's going to be good. So that will be in Amos as well. But today uh, I want to talk about the following, and it's this. When the lion roars. Can everybody say that with me? When the lion roars. And I want to um, present to you a really important uh, theological concept. What is theology? It's simply this, the study of God. Theos meaning God. And, and ology is typically the study of. And so the study of God. And, um, and, and I want to give you a theological concept today that I think is Really, really important. Obviously, every preaching has theology in it. Uh, no doubt about it. We're talking about God every Sunday. But, um, but, but, but something very specific today. And, and, and as I was studying through Amos and reading through Amos, it just really struck me um, this, what, what we call the paradox. Can anybody say that word with me? Paradox. Uh, what is a paradox? A paradox, generally speaking, is two seemingly contradictory things that are actually not contradictory at all, even though they appear to be contradictory. Now, let me give you uh, an example of paradox regarding God that, that, that is easy to understand. God's transcendence and God's imminence. What, what is that? The transcendence of God is the fact that God is beyond all things, that he is above all things, that he is even in one sense like far away. He's on the edges of the universe. He's out there over all of it, right? And, and, and some religions on the planet believe that God obviously is transcendent, that he is over all things, above all things, and, and out there far away. But then we, we also believe that God is imminent, which means that God is Emmanuel, God with us. He is present with us. Does anybody believe that about God? And, and, and they both appear to be contradictory. How can God both be out there and at the same time be right here with us? And that's what we call a paradox. Two seemingly contradictory things, but for God, as we just saying, all things are possible, right? And, uh, and some religions teach a concept of a God that's out there. Others would teach uh, maybe their uh, leader or founder would have been more like right here because some religions have a human founder, and so God would have been right here. But we believe in a God that is all-encompassing, and, 
all present in every location, and, and that is important. And so there's another kind of paradox that I want to share with you today um, in the book of Amos. And, and as I said, the title of this is When the Lion Roars. Amos was a shepherd, and uh, he was called by God right about in the middle of the kingdom of Judah um, in, in terms of their kings. Just, just so you have an idea of this, um, as, as you know and as I've preached, uh, under King David and King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was one kingdom, but then it split into Judah and Israel. Interestingly enough, before their exile to, to, to Babylon, uh, Israel, uh, talking about both of them, but Israel lasted a little over 200 years with their kings from the time of having their first king to going to exile, a little over 200. Everybody say 200. But Judah actually lasted right around 350 years uh, before their exile, so with their kings. And whereas Amos in the mix of this, he is right in the middle of the kingdom of Judah, about the same amount of time before and after him, just by a few years. And this is around the 700s BC, more or less, when Amos is prophesying. So he was a shepherd. He took care of trees, and God told him, start prophesying. And so that's what he did, and, uh, and God called him to do it. So I want to jump into this, and, and here's what it says right at the beginning. This message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in visions. Somebody say visions. Uh, really interesting, he doesn't just receive the word from God or the words from God. He literally sees visions, and in the visions, he is given the words. The words are spoken that he is supposed to say. He received this message and visions two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. This is what he saw and heard. The Lord's voice will, what does it say right there? Will roar, will roar from Zion. I want everybody to do your best lion roar right now. No, no, I'm just kidding, 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 kidding. The, the Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and will thunder from Jerusalem. Can you imagine the voice of the Lord that roars and sounds like thunder? You know, a lot of Christians talk about I heard the still, small voice of the Lord. And it's like, praise God, bless you. Have you heard the roar? You know, have you heard the thunder? I don't think I have. That, that would be probably pretty scary if that were to happen. And, and he says this, the lush pastures of the shepherds will dry up. The grass on Mount Carmel will wither and die. So, so Amos's prophetic word begins with the Lord saying, the Lord is going to roar and he's going to start destroying some stuff. This is the plan of God. He's going to roar and he's going to thunder and he's going to destroy. Now, why in the world would God do this? Well, I'll get there, but, but let me just be clear. As I mentioned last week, most of the prophets 
have more or less a, a similar pattern. And what is it? It's God saying, I'm going to uh, discipline you or destroy you or punish you. Why? Because you've done these bad things. And so that's what's going to happen. But then afterwards, you're going to repent or you're going to change your mind. You're going to come back to me. And then I'm going to bless you. Everybody say blessing. Right? And, so, and, and I'm going to bless you. And, and that's more or less how it goes. And Amos is no different. The, 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 the whole prophetic word over the nine chapters more or less ends up that way. Although the vast majority of Amos is destruction. So, um, but, but, but that's more or less what it is. I'm not going to follow that pattern today because I really sense that, that the Lord has a, fo a specific focus that, that he wants me to bring through this message. So the Lord roars and he thunders. And, and why is he doing this? Well, we're going to see right now. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says the following. This is what the Lord says. The people of Damascus have sinned, watch the words, again and again. Everybody say that with me. Again and again. One more time. Again and again. Just so you know, in the Hebrew, what this actually says is, these people have committed three sins, even four. That, that's what it says in the Hebrew. These people have committed three sins, even four. But the concept is, they sinned once, they sinned again, they sinned a third time, and as if that was not enough, they added on a fourth one to it. The idea is just they, they're sinning again and again. God warns them, they sin again. God says, stop, they sin again. They just keep on doing it. And by the way, these sins were not just like, oh my gosh, I got into a car accident, okay? These sins were not, I was driving two and a half miles over the speed limit, you know, and, and God is just going to punish you for that. No, no, these were horrendous sins. I mean, these people had completely abandoned God and, and they were not following him at all. They were uh, abusing people, misusing people, dishonoring God, worshiping other gods. It was just all over the place, horrendous evil that was going on. But he says, the people of Damascus have sinned again and again. Verse 6 of chapter 1, the people of Gaza have sinned. What does he say? Oh, yeah, you're going to have to participate with me today, all right? So the people of Gaza have sinned what? Again and again. Verse 9, the people of Tyre have sinned. The people of Edom, verse 11, have sinned again and again. Verse 13, the people of Ammon have sinned. Verse 1 of chapter 2, the people of Moab have sinned. And then verse 4, the people of, hold on, the people of who? Judah have sinned how? Again and again. And then lastly, verse 6, chapter 2, the people of who? Israel have also sinned again and again. All right, so God starts with all these other countries, and then he moves towards his people, Judah and Israel, and ends with them, saying that they've just kept on doing it. And he's given warnings, and he's tried to stop them, and done everything he possibly can but they won't stop. Our God is a lion that roars. You know, in the, in the world today, 
And, and I'm going to begin addressing a little bit now what, what, what I wanted to talk about. In, in, in the world today, a, a lot of people have these different perceptions about God or even about religion. So, so some, some people, when, when they think about God, they think about God as being this. God who's obviously like out there and this God is, is, is strong and this God is powerful and, and this God is angry all the time because we all screw up. And, and he's mad, and, and we got to do the right things, and this God's going to, like, you know, burn us all or, or do horrible things. You know, this is God. And so I, I need to please him so that way he's, like, chill with me, right? And so the, that's what a lot of people believe about God. And then other people believe, no, no, that, that's not God. God is, like, really cool and just really nice, and, and he's just so gracious, and you're just like, sit with him, and it's like being at the beach every day. It's amazing, right? This is God. And most people, in whatever religion they have, they'll tend to think of God as one or the other. But I am here to tell you that God is both. This is the paradox of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. And if you want a good example of this, it's amazing because some people go, hey, the, the, the God of the Old Testament seems like really mad all the time, and then Jesus seems really nice. Wrong. If you actually study Scripture, you begin to understand it. Jesus was very nice to a Samaritan woman that he found at a well, and he was very nice to a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and he was very nice to a lot of people but Jesus was also the guy that walked into the temple and started throwing tables around he wasn't chill all the time and 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 some people go well the God of the Old Testament he was angry all the time actually no he wasn't God, the God of the Old Testament, there isn't a God of the Old and the New. It's the same God, right? Amen. But, but the, the version we think about of him in the Old Testament is, oh, he's just angry all the time. But when you actually read the Old Testament, there's a declaration about God that happens over and over, and it's this. God is slow to anger, and he is. You're like, but he punished people. Yeah, after they sinned again. And again, and again, and again, and wouldn't stop. And finally he gets to the end and he goes, it is time for me to intervene. I got to do something about this. And every parent in the room knows what I'm talking about. Because you're the same. You're like, I let it go once. I let it go twice. I'm coming to the end of my rope. Any parents know what I'm talking about? And then finally you get to a point, you're like, no more! Stop it! Has that happened? Any parent in the room at all? Okay, great. We're all a whole bunch of normal people. Okay. But see, God also comes to the end of his rope. Oh, he is slow to anger, but he is just, and he does that which is right. And so they had sinned again and again and again and again and never ending. And so in chapter 3, we, we get this and, and watch how amazing God is. I, I want you to, to see this. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family I rescued from Egypt. From among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. God, God is absolutely 
showing his grace because when he picked Israel, they didn't deserve it. God actually told them multiple times. He's like, don't even think for a second that I picked you because you had anything good going on. I picked you because I picked you. That's all there is to it. And so Israel, like, be humble. You're not, like, special because you did something. You're only special because I decided that I wanted you. And grace is the foundation of God's operation. Oh, somebody say it with me. Grace is the foundation of God's operation. Oh, it absolutely is. We are saved because of his grace. And it was him picking Israel. He started with grace. Some people read scripture and they go, yeah, but God like disciplines them so much. He disciplines them after he picked them. And they never deserve to be picked in the first place. God is gracious. And how many would say, I don't deserve it either. But his grace got a hold of me as well. But that also means that because his grace got a hold of us, we are sons and daughters of God, and he's our father, and he gets to discipline us when he wants to. From among all the families on the earth, I've been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. I have to punish you because you're my children. Because I love you. I have to do this. I don't have a choice. And then, and then he goes on. I love verse 3. What, what, watch what he says. He gives some examples in this prophetic word. He goes, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? I, I want you to think yes or no. And then I want you to answer. Can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? No, of course not. If you don't agree on the direction, you'll end up going in different directions, right? Why does God have to punish us? Let me tell you. Verse 3 shows it. It's so easy because God's path is going this way. And then all of a sudden, me, his child, who he loves, starts walking this way. And God's going, the path you're on, Jeff, is leading you to destruction. My path is a path of blessing. And I've been trying to talk to you to get you to walk in the same direction, but you're walking somewhere else. And I've tried talking, and I've tried pulling you, and he uses the carrot, but sometimes he's got to get the stick and say, enough, get over here. Why? Because his path is a path of blessing and a path that is good. Does a lion ever roar in a thicket without, watch this, first finding its victim? I want you to consider the, the, the visual that he's giving here. So when does the lion roar? The lion does roar. But when does the lion roar? The lion roars once it's about to attack. 
It's already found its victim. So when the roar comes, the roar is not coming way before. The roar is coming immediately before the attack, right? And, and God is using this symbolism to make something very clear. Does a young lion growl in its den without first catching its prey? First it gets its prey, then it growls, and then it feasts, right? And so that's what's being said. Does a bird ever get caught in a trap that has no bait? No. First the bait is there, then the bird gets caught. Does a trap spring shut when there's nothing to catch? No, absolutely nothing. If the trap springs shut, there's obviously something there to be caught. When the ram's horn blows a warning, shouldn't the people be alarmed? Meaning, when the enemy was coming, they would blow a horn. So if the horn is being blown, then that means there's an enemy at the gates, right? Does disaster come to a city? Watch this. Unless the Lord has planned it. You know, a lot of people get, get into, and, and there's believers too, where we get into this thing and, and we, we start going, Man, all this suffering, all this difficulty that I'm going through. And we go, why, God? Why? And I can stand before you right now. Why doesn't this work out? Why is this so messed up? Why did this happen to me? And I'm here to tell you that I have no idea why. Sometimes we get the answer, but a lot of times we don't. I want you to think for a second about the life of Job. Job was righteous. Job was holy. Job was a better Christian than a whole lot of Christians today. And yet, Job loses his houses, his kids' houses, loses his animals, his money, his resources, loses his own kids. They all die. Loses his health. He's struck with sickness. And the only thing that remained was his life and his wife who didn't even like him. That's it. And if you, has anybody read through the book of Job before? Anybody? Yeah, okay. If you read through the whole book of Job, and, and it's a conversation, right, between he, him and his friends. And, and, and here's how it goes. The whole thing is friends. I, I just read through it and finished it a few weeks or a couple weeks ago. And, and, and his friends are going, Job, of course God's making you suffer because you sinned. And Job is going, I didn't sin. And another friend goes, Job, you know you're suffering because you did something wrong. Come on, fess up. What did you do? He's like, I didn't do anything. And another friend goes, no, 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 no. God, this is the way God works. He is causing you to suffer because you have done something wrong. I did nothing wrong. And Job is right. He did nothing wrong. So why in the world does God let him suffer? And you get to the end of the book. And God finally speaks to Job. And God's basically like, Job, Paraphrase, massive paraphrase right now. But Job, you suffered, so you know that I'm God. And I do whatever I want. And you need to come to this recognition, Job, that you are not in control. See, Job was a good man, but he still had something to learn. He had still had something to grow into. 
He still had a mentality that needed to be changed. And the mentality was not what his friends thought. It was not, oh, he's the sinner, so God is punishing him. The mentality was he needed to understand the sovereignty of God, that God is above all, he is in charge of all, and who am I as a man, who are you as a man or a woman, to even consider that God submits to you or me based off of what we want. God is in charge, he is to be feared, he is to be respected, he is to be honored, he is to be obeyed because he is God, period, end of story, that is God. Philippians chapter 2 says this, that, you know, at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. How many knees will bow? Every knee will bow. How many tongues will confess? Every tongue. Not just Christian. No, no, no. Every single person will declare that he is Lord. Every knee. When we come into the presence of God, not a knee Will, not a leg will stay standing because you can't. He is God. I, I imagine it'll look like the knees just going weak on us because once we encounter the reality of who God is, there's just nothing else you can do but kneel to the ground. It's like the pull of gravity and it just pulls you to the ground and it pulls the words out of your mouth. He is the Lord. Meant to be honored and respected and obeyed. And here's the reality. Even in my life, I've gone through times where, just in case you're wondering, I, I've got my, my voice going high. And Is Pastor Jeff mad about something? No, nope, nothing at all. I'm perfectly fine, all right? Did somebody do something? No, nope, nobody did anything. I don't preach about people doing stuff. No. Nope. I, I want to get this through to us, though, and get it clear to us. It's so important because I've been through moments in my life where essentially I treated God as just this God that's kind of chill over here. And so I don't need to really take everything with the gravity and the importance that God desires. And so I end up slacking off and I end up just kind of going with the flow and not being intentional and I end up maybe entering into areas that I shouldn't enter into as I'm sure has happened to all of us in some ways or entering into attitudes that I shouldn't enter into because we lose the understanding that God is ferocious that God is all powerful and that God does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And I can't stop him. I can't change him. I mean, we do say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13a. I have no power to stop the sovereign plans of God. He is God, period. And we go through times in our lives where we want to obey in times where we don't want to obey. Has anybody been through that in your own life? And, and I want to just say it this way. No matter what season you're in and the want to or don't want to, he still deserves our obedience. Period. Why? Because he is God. 
and he's in charge. And you heard, heard me say the word that, that he is to be feared. And what I mean by that is not to be afraid. We are as biblically as it says, we are to fear God. We are to have a healthy and real understanding of the weight of God, the glory of God, the power of God, the presence of God, the ferociousness of God, the strength of God. And to not think that God's just some chill guy over here that's just kind of hanging out doing whatever that we can play dominoes with. No. God is God who is worthy to be praised, who is worthy to be adored, who is worthy to be honored, who is worthy to be respected, who is worthy to be trusted, who is worthy to be obeyed every moment of every day of our lives. And so in verse 7, just like the lion roars, it says this, Indeed, the sovereign Lord never does anything until he reveals his plans to his servants, the prophets. So, the, the, so God in the Old Testament, his roar was through the prophets. The prophets would give that roar of God. And once the prophets spoke, it's like you better pay attention because the lion is about to show up. And, and, and so this happens. And in verse 8, the word of God through Amos is, is what? Watch this. Verse 8. What does it say right at the beginning? The lion has roared. Oh, that, that's like the lion has roared. Get ready. Is there any way I can change it? No, not now. Is there any way we can go back in time? Nope. The lion has roared. The prey is already there. He is getting ready to feast. He is getting ready to attack. It's, it's a done for. It is already decided. So who isn't frightened? Obviously, the sovereign Lord has spoken. So who can refuse to proclaim his message? And I love, I love what God says through Amos in, in verse 12. Because the lion, God does what he wants to do and when he wants to do it. And in verse 12 it says, so it will be, uh, no, no, this is what the Lord says. A shepherd who tries to rescue a sheep from a lion's mouth will recover only two legs or a piece of an ear. You're like, thanks for the visual, Amos. Watch this. It's like, because once the lion has got the sheep, any sheep in the room, by the way? We are a part of his pasture. Once the lion has got the sheep, anybody that attempts to rescue you from the lion's mouth, good luck. You're just pulling off a leg, a portion of the air. Because when God determines what he is going to do, it is done. Like I came on the perfect Sunday, didn't I? But watch this. Watch it. And after this, we get to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, it says the following. Listen, you people of Israel, listen to this. I love the words. Funeral song I am singing. 
The virgin Israel has fallen, never to rise again. She lies abandoned on the ground with no one to help her up, obviously, because if God has taken her down, there's not a single person that can raise her up again. The doors that God closes remain shut. The doors that God opens remain open. What God determines, that is what he does. Verse 3, the sovereign Lord says, when a city sends a thousand men to battle, only a hundred will return. When a town sends a hundred, only ten will come back alive. Now this, somebody pay attention to this. Now this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Somebody read this with me right now. Come back to me and live. Come back to me and live. And this, my friends, is where we get a picture of the paradox we get a picture of who God really is. Because while one religion teaches a God that is, that is trite and spiteful and will just get back at you for whatever they feel like, and while others teach a faith of a God who just hangs out and is just kind of wimpy and weak and just, but you just love hanging out with them, with our God is completely different. He is not one or the other, but he is the powerful, ferocious God who should be feared and respected and honored, yet says, come to me and you will live. Come to me because my grace is huge. And why are both of these important? I'll tell you why. Because a God who is not powerful and ferocious and strong and worthy to be respected has no life to offer you at all. This God over here might be fun to hang out with, but has got no power for your life and for your transformation and for your eternity. Only the God that is in charge of all things actually has the ability to rise from the dead on the third day and give you the life that you and I actually have. Only this type of God can give you this type of life. Am I speaking to anybody today? And this is who God is. Hold them both in your hands. Not that we would ever be afraid of God. No, that is not what God does with his children. Not at all. But to understand the reality of who our God is. He is a lion that roars. But only that lion can protect you. Only that lion can keep you. Only that lion can hold you from the pain of death and the work of the enemy of our souls, only that lion, only this lion, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says this, don't worship at the pagan altars at Bethel. Bethel, I preached on Bethel on months ago. Bethel means the house of God. Don't preach at the pagan altars of Bethel. Bethel, which was the house of God, had been turned into the house of gods. Don't worship there. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal or Beersheba, for the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile, and the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. And then he repeats it one more time. Come back to the Lord and live. 
Does anybody want to live? Come back to him and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire, devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the flames, and if anything, the wooden gods in Bethel will be burned in the flames. Because you can look at that wooden idol. You can pray at the feet of that wooden idol. You can see the wooden idol. But it will go up in flames just like anything else does. But we've got a God. Alive. Powerful. Strong. Uncontrollable who does what he wants when he wants. And this, God says, come to me, and I will give you life. And I look at this, God, I say, yes, you're the only one that can actually give it. There's not another God powerful enough to give me the life that I need. There's not a, another God strong enough to go to his death and then raise from the dead. And both were the strength of God to both die for us and to rise from the dead. There's not another God wise enough to lead me in the right path that I need to walk in. Oh, my friends, plenty of religious faiths will give you morality for this life, but they will not give you the wisdom that lasts for all eternity long. But I've got a God who does. And so in verse 8, and I'm coming to the end here. I want everybody to read this with me. Verse 8 right now. Let's read what it says. It is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and Orion. He, he turns darkness into morning and day into night. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. By the way, if you took like uh, science in school and learned about the weather and how it rains... God included that in the Bible before anybody started talking about it in modern times. I take the rain from the ocean, I take the water from the ocean, and bring it back down. The Lord is his name. The Lord that controls the weather cycles. The Lord that created the stars. The Lord who has planned out your life. The Lord who gives you his life. The Lord is his name. With blinding speed and power, he destroys the strong, crushing all their defenses. I'm glad I belong to this God because if you're the enemy of this God, you're in for a whole lot of trouble. But if you're his son or daughter, yes, he will discipline you but his discipline is founded on his grace, which will bring you back onto his path and lead you further into his abundant life that he has for you and for me. This is the God that I hold dear. This is the God who I love with all my heart. And can I just tell you one last thing, and I gotta end. As you draw closer to this Jesus, this all-powerful God, as you choose to come into his arms, this fearsome God, there you will find rest.
there you will find peace. And there you will realize that your obedience will change from being a have to to a want to. Because you have been so blessed by the goodness of this lion who roars. Because he can roar punishment, but his punishment can go on your enemies. And he protects you and keeps you. I love Jesus. And this is the God we believe in. He's not just an angry, petty God over here. And he's not just a chill God over here. He's a God that is powerful and precious. Strong and close. Lord Jesus, today, we recognize our need for you, for who you are, for what you do, for your goodness in our lives. And Lord God, today, today we say that we want to throw our lives unto you at your feet. Oh, Jesus, we give our lives to you. If you want to do that today, it doesn't matter if you've known the Lord forever, if you're today or wanting to decide to follow Jesus, would you just raise your hands if that's you today, that you say, I want to throw my life at the feet of Jesus. And Lord, as we give over our lives to you, as we say, Lord, we are yours. Today, Lord Jesus, would you begin a new work inside of us? Oh, would you transform us and change us? Would you lead us and guide us? And would you bring us into the fullness of your presence and of your goodness? May we become a people who walk in all that you have for us. And as we give our lives completely over to the powerful God, the strong God, and the living God, may we be filled to overflowing with your peace, your joy, your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and your love. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name. How many can say amen? How many can give an applause to our God? He is worthy to be praised by his people. I felt strongly about really helping us to understand an important perspective of who God is and how he operates. And I pray that I communicated it clearly um, and biblically to everybody. Um, it's always a blessing to gather together.